How's everyone doing today? Good, good, glad to hear that. Hey, I am so glad that as a church, we always look for ways to take every opportunity to serve. And that we want to be influencers and difference makers in this community. That we want to be a church that makes a difference, that's making an impact upon this community. And I love that we have members of our church who want to do that just on a Sunday morning in this place to help lead us to fulfill our, our chief purpose as human beings, which is to worship God. And that's our, our worship team. And I love that we have a, such a talented a range of people with Stephanie and the rest of the band. So can we just give them appreciation for how they continue to bring us before God? Thank you. Now, in 2010, this church was formed from the vision that Dave and the former teaching pastor Doug Osborne had for a church in this community for those who have given up on church. 2010 was a big year, especially for us as a church. But 2010 was also the year that we saw the movie The A-Team come into theaters, right? Some of you remember watching that show, the original version as a kid, and watching Mr. T blow up things on a Saturday morning every week, right? That's probably some nostalgic childhood right there. Well, when this movie came out, there's a new fan base that kind of sparked up a little bit from it, new people who were excited about it, who were discovering the story for the first time. And they discovered this character named Hannibal, and he's probably the, the leader of the group and that sort of deal. And, and Hannibal always had this catchphrase. You know, he showed it all the time on, uh, on the TV show and in the movie. It was this catchphrase where he would stop, and usually with a cigar in his mouth, and he'd look at the camera, and he'd be like, I love it when a plan comes together, right? Yeah, some of you already know this, okay? And we, I think we would all agree with Hannibal that we love it when a plan comes together, but very often does it actually come together the way we want it, right? Like we, we live in this life where we, we make plans and then everything just hits the fan and it goes nuts. Like sometimes it's, hey, you have a day where you're like, I'm going to accomplish all these tasks and you don't get to any of them because something comes up. Or maybe you had a day where you're like, this is going to be a perfect, relaxing day. And then your spouse gives you a honey to-do list um, or a chore list. Or maybe your car breaks down or maybe there's an emergency. And all of a sudden, your quiet, peaceful day is over because plans have changed. And we all know this is true. We've all experienced this. If you go to Menards and you're like, I have a plan, I'm just going to get one thing, and then you come back an hour later because you're like, I need someone else, right? You never just go to Menards once in a single day, right? Because sometimes we make plans and they don't happen the way we want them to happen. And it can be frustrating, especially if that plan is you want to do something good for someone else and it all crumbles apart. Ever wonder if maybe God feels that way sometimes? I mean, think about it. We, we're opening up the Bible and we're walking through the story. We're trying to see how this all chronologically fit in together. And we kicked it off last week. We're just looking at, here's this God, this good creator. He made this beautiful world. And then he made us and to have this special relationship with us. He made us to have a purpose with him, to worship him, to be in a relationship with him where we would co-rule this world. Everything seems wonderful, right? And then we see there's this moment where God basically says, this can stay the same way if you'll just trust me okay and we didn't trust him and everything kind of broke apart 
Then we read Genesis, you know, 1 through 11, the whole, that series, and it's this downward spike where humanity was taking God's good world, and rather than putting more goodness into it, more blessing as we were supposed to do, right? Instead, we filled it with evil. We filled it with violence and oppression and abuse, and you get to the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, and it's the, probably the most heinous act where humanity's all gathering together like an army, and we're like, hey, we're going to dethrone God. We're going to storm the the gates of heaven. We're going to exile God. And it's this horrible scene of humanity. Of Here's this moment where humanity decides that they're going to attack this good creator who only ever wanted to bless humanity, who only ever wanted to be with humanity. And you just can't help but look at it and be like, wow, we've really gotten off our rocker. Like, we've really gotten off track. We were supposed to be something good and beautiful and to further God's goodness in the world. And look what we're doing now. And you got to stop and think, how is God going to fix this? Because God did promise he was going to fix this. In Genesis chapter 3, remember, right when God saw the mistake that happened, how our failure caused everything to break, God's response was to say, don't worry, I'm going to come in, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to restore this. I'm declaring war on this evil. But it hasn't happened yet. And we're left wondering and waiting well, today we're going to pick up at the very beginning of God's big rescue story. It starts at Genesis chapter 12. This g- chapter, Genesis chapter 12, is so very important for understanding the rest of the Bible. Because this is God saying, I'm going to roll up my sleeves now and I'm going to declare war on this evil. Here's how I'm going to fix this world. And so we pick up in Genesis chapter 12, where it's a few generations after the Tower of Babel story, or Tower of Babylon story. And God is focusing on this family that's building in this location. And God goes and he calls one single man from the midst of Babylon for a a purpose. It's this guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls to Abraham and this is what he says. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to read along with me as we're going to be seeing this story that God is going to be carving of how he's going to rescue the world. And it starts in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1. Where God looks at Abraham and he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So get this. God finds a man in the same spot where humanity did its most heinous act against God. And God goes to him and says, I want you to leave everything behind. And I want you to trust me that I'm going to do something great. If you'll just go out and leave your family and friends, everything behind, leave your past behind, we're going to go to something new. Think of the, the weight this carries, because this is different than it would be for us, because there's no social media, there's no mail carrier service, no cell phones, no internet. So this is God saying, you're going to say goodbye to all your family members. You might never see them ever again, all your loved ones. And I'm asking you to trust me. And it shows us that God is this being. He wants us to trust him enough to leave our past behind. And he's telling Abraham, he says, if you trust me, I'm going to do something great through you. In fact, he shares with us in the next sentence what this great thing that God wants to build in Abraham and through Abraham. It's in verse 2. And God says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that is a big 
deal what God has just said, especially, and you'll be picking up on this, if you've been reading the story with us or you've just been following along in the Bible, because what God just said there is he's saying that he wants to restore all of creation back to him and to its intended purpose through the line of Abraham. And he's pointing out a couple different things on how he's doing this. For instance, in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel story, right? We saw humanity gathering together and their whole reasoning behind why they wanted to dethrone God and attack God was because they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be great. And here God is saying, I'm going to give Abraham a name that's going to be great among all generations. God is wanting to give what everyone else was trying to just take for themselves. God in this moment, he wants to be the provider of what's good. Remember, we've seen that this is God's intended purpose. He wants to provide us with what's good. So here he's like, everyone else has been trying to make a name for themselves, but I want to give you that name that everyone else craves. The second thing is God said he wants to to bless Abraham and have him be a blessing upon others. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 because that's what God told Adam. He looked at Adam and he says, I'm going to bless you and I want you to go out and be a blessing, meaning go out and spread life into this world. And so here's God saying, I'm going to restore everything back to its intended purpose through your family line, if you'll just trust me. And God has an intent for this, a purpose behind all this. And it's in that final clause we read. Let me just go ahead and read it again because it's so crucial for understanding how the rest of the Bible is going to flow. It's in verse 3. It says, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, this is the central point of the Old Testament and much of the Bible, that God wants to fix this world, and he wants to do it through this family line who are going to be a blessing upon others. Because God wants a family. Right? He wants a family who will have a purpose of being a blessing upon others. Now we're going to see this promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus to come. But for now, it's being promised to Abraham. And God's saying, if you'll trust me, I'm going to build something from you that's going to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And this seems great and all, except there's this problem where Abraham doesn't have any kids. He's getting to be an old man. Him and his wife don't have any kids. And so this is a a big deal for Abraham. In fact, this is an aspect that he's carried this shame for his whole life. Because Abraham means father of many. But he's the father of none. So he's having to trust that God is going to keep his promises. And we know that Abraham has this trust in God because in the book of Hebrews, we read that by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So Abraham decided God was worth trusting. Remember, this was a big deal in the story so far, is that humanity didn't want to trust God. They didn't think God was worth trusting. But here's Abraham who's deciding that God is worth trusting. Trusting enough that he's willing to leave his past behind and go forward in the new direction God wants him. The direction that's going to be a blessing upon others. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, this is great and all. I'm sure it's, everything goes wonderful. This is going to be like, hey, you're going to go and it's going to be easy. Well, it wasn't. This isn't any little house on the prairie kind of story. We find immediately that Abraham hits a lot of obstacles and problems all throughout this journey. Some of them begin with just the simple fact that he has no kids and he's living as an immigrant in a, in a hostile land. And he's trying to convince the rest of his family to trust him that he heard God right, right? Can you imagine the pressure of that? But we also see that there's the obstacle of Abraham himself. See, God didn't pick Abraham because he was morally superior than everyone else or because he had his life altogether. 
In fact, we find Abraham is kind of a bad dude in the very beginning. Because right after God gives him this promise saying, hey, Abraham, I know you're a nobody, but I want to fix the world through your family line if you'll just trust me. The very thing we see right after that is a story that is kind of shameful for Abraham. It starts off that he gets in the promised land. He's following where God wants him to go. But then a famine arises and and he decides, hey, I'm going to go to Egypt and I'm going to get away from this scene. I'm going to go to Egypt and we're just going to survive there. Now, this will be all right, except there's this issue where, you know, Abraham, like all men of God tend to do, they marry way out of their league, right? Um, amen, men, that's, there you go. Some of you men, you can thank me later for the, you know, brown nosing right there you can give to your wives. Uh, so Abraham marries way out of his league and he goes into Egypt and he looks at his wife. He's like, you know what? This might be a problem. And he even tells her so in the book of Genesis in chapter 12, right after he gets his promise from God, he looks at his wife and says, hey, honey, um, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, um, which she's kind of like buttering her up. He's like, hey, I know you're really pretty and all, um, but there might be a problem. He says, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife? Like, it's kind of mocking Abraham. He's like, people are not going to believe that I married, you know, a trophy wife. That, that's how he's saying but he says this, he says, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. So Abraham goes around telling people his wife is his sister. Talk about some serious need for couples counseling, right? It's like, it, that's a line that's going to be pretty hard for you to mend and come across back with later. But Abraham does this. And this is not even the first time he does this. You read Genesis 20, and it's a few decades later, and Abraham does it again. He goes around telling people, he's like, yeah, that's, that's my sister. That's not my wife, you know, because he's, he's scared. <laughs> he's afraid that if people knew who he married, that he's going to be killed because they're going to want to marry her. So he goes around telling this. And this is like, man, this is the guy that God wants to, to build a nation out of, that God wants to rescue the world through his family line. Well, this is not even the worst thing that Abraham does. There's a story later on where they've been in the, the desert and the, the land for about 10 years and they haven't had any kids. So Sarah has an idea. She gets one of her servants, comes up to Abraham and is like, hey, Abraham, I've got this you know, pretty young lady here with me and, and I've got an idea of how maybe we can fulfill God's plans, right? Here's what she tells him. She says, behold, this is chapter 16 now. She says, behold, now Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. She wants Abraham to have an affair, thinking this will be how we get God's plans forward. It's totally absurd. It's just nothing more than a repeat of the story of Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve were told, trust God and his definition of good and evil, and they didn't. And here's Sarah doing the exact same thing. She knows what God's good and evil is, you know, she's, but she's not trusting God. She's like, you know what? We can take this matter into our own hands. God is t being far too slow in this. Let's, let's make this work on our own. Let's have an affair. And Abraham agrees to it. He's like, yeah, you know what? That, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do that, right? It's totally messed up. And it causes all these problems. And you see in this story where God has to keep coming to the rescue over and over to Abraham because he keeps making these failures over and over. And you think, when is this guy going to learn? And yet God keeps being gracious. Like what we talked about last week where God is gracious to us even when we don't deserve it. 
He keeps coming to Abraham's rescue. And he keeps promising, saying, you know what, Abraham, I know you just messed up, but I'm committed to this promise. And we see Abraham finally gets to a point where he looks up and he says, you know what, I believe you, Yahweh. It's in chapter 15, he says, and he believed Yahweh and he counted to him as righteousness. Basically, he's saying, I believe that God's going to keep his promises despite my failures, despite my mistakes. And that's what God does. Because sometime later, many years of wandering around, trying to trust God, hoping that he's going to fulfill this promise, God does. And we read in chapter 21 where Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and Yahweh did to Sarah as he had promised, basically saying, hey, I'm going to open up your womb. You're going to be able to have kids. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So Isaac is born. And we want to say, hooray, yes, God has kept his promises. He's fulfilled his plan. He's given Abraham a son. We're moving forward on this plan, right? Well, Isaac's not a perfect person either. In fact, he does the same thing his father does. He marries way out of his league. He gets embarrassed by it. He starts telling people, this is my sister, not my wife. You know, like father, like son. He makes the same mistakes his father does. And yet we still see in those failures, here's God keeps coming to the rescue. The God you know, works through Isaac. And he, he fulfills his promises because Isaac then has two sons of his own. So we, we've gone through the failures of Abraham. We've gone through the failures of Isaac. And now we're dealing with Isaac's two children, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob's the younger brother, and his name means deceiver. And right from the, the beginning, we see how he is a deceiver. It starts off where his older brother Esau is the one who's supposed to get the inheritance. And the inheritance is this promise made to Abraham of, hey, God's going to build a nation from you. It's going to be a blessing upon the rest of the world. It's going to fix the world, right? Jacob wants that for himself. So he starts scheming and manipulating and coming up with a plan to, to get this. And he starts off with his brother, gets his brother to mock the inheritance. And then he goes in and he tricks his father who's blind into thinking that's Esau when it's really Jacob so that Isaac would give the blessing upon Jacob. It's a really shady thing. Jacob's not a guy you read and you're like, how do I be a better person? Let me go read Jacob. You don't read Jacob. Jacob's a horrible guy. He's a really shady criminal in many ways. All right? And he, he steals the inheritance from his older brother. His older brother gets furious. His older brother's like, I'm going to kill you. And we've already read stories like Cain and Abel of how brothers do kill each other. And so Jacob, he just takes off running. He's like, I'm getting out of town. He, he leaves and goes to a completely different country. Well, along the way, he ends up meeting a guy named Laban. And he starts to work for Laban because Laban has a pretty daughter and he wants to marry Laban. So he strikes up a contract with Laban. He's like, let me work for you to earn your favor to marry your daughter. Well, in Laban, he finds his match because Laban is 10 times the deceiver as him. And Jacob ends up spending about 20 years working for this guy. And he ends up marrying four women. One of them is the one girl he wants to marry. And that's the last one. But along the way, he marries four women. So imagine here's Jacob, 20 years working for a job and a boss he hates. It's miserable work. And he comes home and there's four angry women always fighting with each other. They hate one another and they're always taking it out on Jacob. There is no peace. There is no rest. Here's this guy, Jacob. He is schemed and manipulate his way trying to get everything he wants in life. And now he's faced with the situation where you're like, man, you just can't help but feel sorry for him. But it's this situation which finally humbles Jacob. And so after decades of this, it's a humble Jacob that decides, I'm going to return home. I'm going to be with my family. I'm going to be the man I'm supposed to be. 
But along the way, he encounters Esau. Remember the brother who vowed he was going to kill him? This is not a good encounter that Jacob fears or thinks is coming up. In fact, we read of Jacob's reaction to all this in chapter 32 of Genesis. It says, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. So it's saying, hey, we came, we saw Esau, he wants to meet you, and he's bringing an army. Now, what you don't understand is Esau, over the past few decades, has become a man of war. He's a mercenary. He's a vicious killer. And he's coming to meet his brother who deceived him, who ruined his life. And he's coming with an army. So it's no wonder that the next sentence says, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. This is a terrifying situation. And imagine all this from God's perspective, right? If we zoom back out and we look at how this must feel from God's perspective, right? In Genesis 1 through 11, we saw God constantly pleading with humanity of, hey, trust me, come back to me. And we saw humanity that just wanted instead to destroy itself. And here God is now saying, I'm going to start with just one man. I'm going to build a family out of him. And through this family, I'm going to fix the world. And he's managed to get through with the plan on Abraham and Isaac, you know, despite all their foolishness and failures. But now we're with these two brothers who it looks like they're about to kill each other. It's like, here's this plan. We're three generations into this great nation we're looking to build, right? And it's all falling apart because now it looks like they're all about to kill each other. You can imagine from God's perspective thinking, where, where is this going? This is terrible. This is not what I intended. But from Jacob's perspective as well, he's terrified. He's not thinking from the big perspective of God. He's just seeing, here's a brother who wants to kill me. And so he's doing what he always does. He tries to manipulate the situation. So he starts sending ahead of him all these gifts for his brother. And then he starts sending his family. And he orders his family based on how much he likes them. So the more he likes them, the further back in line they are of they're going to meet his older brother, right? So he starts sending first the you know, three other wives he doesn't like and then all these other kids. And, and it's all like he's putting a shield in between you know, uh, himself. He's making his family a human shield. It's a terrible sight of Jacob. And it's the night before he has to meet his brother. He knows everyone else has already met him. He's, Jacob's alone on a hill on a mountain, waiting it out, thinking, tomorrow I'm probably going to die. And a strange thing happens in this story, where God takes on flesh and, and goes to have a time with Jacob, and they get into a wrestling match. And, and there's this moment, you know, where they're, they're throwing each other to the ground, and of course Jacob loses. In fact, the story is that he gets horribly crippled from this for the rest of his life. Um, but he, he's adamant. He's like, he wants to win. He wraps himself around, you know, God's leg. And the story tells us in chapter 32, verse 26, where he tells God, he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Some things never change, right? See, all of Jacob's life, he has sought a blessing. He sought to make a name for himself. Really, he sought to get himself out of his older brother's shadow and be someone that his father would actually look at and say, I'm proud of you. That's all he's ever wanted. He's been trying to manipulate this into happening. He's trying to scheme his way to making this happening, of trying to, to be blessed. And now he's doing it to God, of trying to wrestle with God and get a blessing from God. And, and what's interesting is God actually gives him this blessing. He actually passes on the blessing he gave to Abraham. He's like, I'm going to do it now through your line of Jacob. We see that in verse 28 when God says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, in this moment, 
Like I said, God is passing on the blessing that he gave to Abraham. So he's basically saying, Jacob, the promise I made to Abraham is going to happen through your family line. You're going to have kids. I'm going to build a nation out of them. And through this people, I'm going to end up fixing the world one day. And we know that, of course, happens in Jesus, right? But but he's saying, I'm going to continue this blessing and promise through your line. And that seems great from a God perspective, right? Really high up. And we're like, okay, good. There's someone who's going to carry on this blessing. But there's still the matter of Esau that he has to deal with in the morning. There's still the down-the-earth situation of, I'm about to encounter a man who wants to kill me and has every justification to do it because I took everything from him. And you can imagine the fear and trauma as Jacob comes down the mountain and there's Esau with his army. He's got all of Jacob's family off to the side, all the gifts that Jacob tried to send, they're all off to the side. And the two brothers are coming together. And here's what happens. It's this beautiful reaction we're showing that, you know, God was also working in Esau's heart. Because in chapter 33, verse 4, it says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And we would say that Esau had every right to enact some sort of justice upon his brother. But God had done a work in them. Because when God wanted to bless them, wanted to bless through them, he's also done a work of blessing them internally, of changing who they are because they trusted God. They, they, you know what they looked at are like, you know what, we're failures, we're, we're imperfect, we made some mistakes, but we're going to trust God. And that's what we kind of see in the stories of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is this central, central truth for the entire rest of the series, the entire story of the Bible, the central truth that, that God wants to communicate to us, I think, in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that God accomplishes his perfect plans through imperfect people. God accomplishes his perfect plans through imperfect people. Now, I've said that before, and it's worth saying it again. Because this is something we see time and time again in the Bible, that the people in the Bible, they're not perfect. They do not have their lives all together. They do not have it all figured out in a roadmap of like, here's how we're going to do this, and we're going to be wonderful, we're going to be successful, we're never going to have failures. You look at every single character in the Bible other than Jesus, and they are a fool. They're a mess. They're failures. And what we see in this exchange is a God who looks at these failures and says, you know what, I'm going to do something beautiful through them. I'm going to do an amazing work. And it's encouraging because, you know what, here's this God, he has plans, and he's like, you know what, everyone thinks that the plan is going to be ruined because there's imperfect people involved, and they're going to break things, they're going to mess it up, and this is all God showing just how committed he is to his plan how good he is and how powerful he is. Because God's plans do not make or break on our actions. They make or break on God's actions. And he is someone who's trustworthy. Why else do you think God time and time again keeps telling people over and over in the Old Testament, he says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If you've ever read the Bible or you grew up in church, you probably have heard that phrasing. God says it a lot in the Bible. Jesus himself says it all the time. And it's because in that exchange, when God is declaring himself, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's saying something crucial about himself. Think of it like Moses in the book of Exodus when Moses encounters God in a burning bush and God's like, I want to send you to Pharaoh. I want to send you to the most powerful man in the world and you're going to tell him that he needs to get my people free, right? Like that's an intimidating thing. And Moses is like, I, I can't do this, you know? And God speaks up in the moment. He's like, do you know who I am? I'm the God of 
uh, you know, I'm God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay, Moses. I'm the God of the people who are perfect and flawless. I'm the God of people who never make a mistake, who everything they touch turns to gold. That's not what God tells Moses. He says, no, I'm the God of the screw-ups. And look what I did to them. Think of it the same way when the Israelites, after 40 years of wandering in the, the wilderness, and they are on the edge of the promised land, they have been trying to trust God. They've messed up a whole lot. But now they're right on the edge, and the land is filled with an enemy, an army that wants to destroy them. And they're terrified. They're shaking in their boots. They're like, we can't do this. We can't defeat this enemy. They've got chariots. They've got all this advanced weaponry. We've got sticks and stones. There's no way we can overcome this enemy. And what does God say to them? He says, oh, yeah, I'm the God of the strong I'm the God of the people who always have victories. No. He says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God of the people who had no right to succeed, and I brought success out of their failures. Peter himself does this. And you read the book of Acts, Peter stands up and he preaches in front of a crowd who crucified Jesus. And he says, look, you guys killed the Messiah, but this was all part of God's plan to bring in this blessing of Abraham. This is all part of God's plan to fix the world, but his blood is still on your hands. And you know who this God is? He's not the God of the ones who are innocent. He's not the God of the ones who never have any troubles. No, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Meaning God is the God of the screw-ups just like you. <laughs> That's what Peter is telling them. Because when God says this over and over, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's saying something truly powerful about himself. That he's the master of taking people who feel like they're screw-ups, who feel like they only fail everything they touch, and he's the master of bringing something beautiful out of them when they trust him. If that doesn't change your life, I don't know what will. In fact, if I were you, I, if you like to take notes in your Bible and things like that, like me, I would take a pen and everywhere you see the phrase, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you put a note and say, this is God saying he is the master of taking screw-ups and bringing something beautiful out of them. He's the master of taking those who are failures, who feel like they're imperfect, and doing a perfect plan through them. I would make a note of that in your Bible if I were you. And this is really encouraging for us in our day, in our society, because we live in a society that's all about success. We want the interviews. We want to be on the magazines. That's how our world lives, where they all want to brag about our, our success. Honestly, that's part of what social media is about, right? Where we're trying to brag and showcase our success a lot of times. So we live in a society that's all about this. And it makes it so we're afraid of failure. We're afraid of people seeing our flaws. We're afraid of people seeing, you know what, they need a little help, right? We're all like that. And here's this God who says he sees us and can bring something beautiful out of it. And that's really encouraging because there are times where life is difficult. We have those moments where we feel like failures. Maybe it's with an assignment. Maybe it's with a class. Maybe it's with our job. Maybe it's in a relationship. And we feel like, man, I'm failing all the time in these areas. And if Jesus was in the room, I know exactly how he would respond to this because we see it all over the Gospels when he encounters people. Where he looks at me and says, I see your brokenness. I see the areas where you feel tortured. I see those areas where you feel like you're a failure. I see those areas where you feel like you're just barely hanging on. And if you'll trust me with this, I can make something beautiful come out of this. I can make it so that you can live in your intended purpose of glorifying God again in this 
thing that you think is your greatest failure might be the platform on which God wants to do his greatest work. And I think that's how Jesus would respond to us, of looking at our areas where we feel like failures. And this is also incredibly encouraging for us because maybe God is asking you to do something. Maybe God has laid a vision or something on your heart, a dream on your heart, and you know it would require you to trust God. It could be anything. It could be something really big or it could be something small. But whatever it is, you know it's going to be a blessing upon others, but it's going to require that you trust God. And maybe you've been afraid to do it. Maybe it involves an invitation. Maybe it involves a conversation. Maybe it goes about, hey, starting a ministry or something like that, something that's going to help others, but you're afraid. And you've already counted yourself as a failure. Because you've messed up before. you failed before. So you're afraid to take that step. And I get that. I really do. And here's the encouraging thing. God's not saying, hey, you're always going to have a success. But he does promise that even our failures, he will work to bring something beautiful out of them. Or he's going to do something great. Or maybe your story that you'll be able to tell is, you know, I worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because he's my God. He has worked his perfect plan through my imperfections. For where I am weak, he is strong. And maybe for you, that's, that's what you need. You need to talk to someone about this because you have this vision and dream that God has put on you and you're afraid to take that step. And if that's the case, look, we would love to, to pray over you. That's why here in a minute, I'm going to stop. I'm going to pray right before we go out to do our baptism and things like that. And there's going to be elders in the back of the room in the next song that we're going to sing. And if you need to talk to someone, you need to say, hey, here's the thing that God has laid on my heart. Can I, can I just voice it so you can pray over me? Look, we want to be back here for you. We want to encourage and inspire you of what God has given you. We want to encourage you to trust God. But maybe you need to have a conversation with an elder of a different note. Maybe this morning what's, what God is laying on your heart is he's showing himself how he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And right now he's saying, but am I your God? And I'm not asking do you go to church? I'm asking, have you surrendered? I'm asking, is there a part of you that says, you know what? I'm trusting God. My life is going to be going according to his plan, his direction. Maybe you need to have that conversation. And we would love to have that conversation. Maybe it even extends itself to, you know what? You need to get baptized. You need to be like publicly announce this to everyone and saying, this is now my new direction in life. I'm going to be trusting God. He's calling the shots. I am his imperfect work that he's going to work a perfect plan through in this world where I can live in my purpose all over again. Where I'm going to trust him. And we would love to baptize you as well. I don't care if you're like, hey, I didn't bring any change of clothes. That's a beautiful thing to walk out of here soaking wet in the waters that you just got baptized. You can brag about that. You go to Lemon House Ground, everyone's like, why are you soaking wet? Let me tell you a story, right? You get to have that privilege, all right? But don't walk out of here living in a story of failure. Walk out of here with your head held high, saying, you know what? I mess up sometimes. I stumble, I make mistakes. Hopefully not nearly as bad as Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob do. But I made some mistakes. And God hasn't given up on me. 
And God promises that he can do beautiful things through imperfect people if they just trust him. And that's the story I'm going to tell. I'm trusting him. Won't you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for what you did in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. How you, uh, you took these people who are so dysfunctional and the rest of the family is only going to get more and more dysfunctional as we're going to be reading about them in the Old Testament. But you took them and you worked through them and you extended your plan, your purpose, and you promised that you were going to save the world and we know that ultimately happened in Jesus who came from that family line that you fulfilled your promise so that we can live in our purpose again. Father, we thank you so much because all of us here, we are, we're a family of imperfect people who just want to follow you. We want to be a church for those who have given up on church. And we know that's failure language ran to who we are. We want to be that body of people who are more adamant about making you famous and pointing to you rather than making a show of anything else. We're not claiming to be perfect. We thank you that you give us that freedom to be able to point to you, to be able to look at others and say, let me tell you about Jesus and how he has changed my life when I trusted him. So Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for how you call us to trust you, to step out. And Father, if there are those in this room who feel like God is calling them to do something, I pray that this would be a Sunday. But they might be like Abraham. They might be able to say, you know what? I'm going to trust this God. That he can work in me and through me for what he has laid on my heart to do. And if there are any in this room who have not said yes to you, who have not said, you know what, God? You're not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God of me. You are my God. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to surrender you. If there's anyone in this room who has not had that opportunity, who has not had that surrender to you, Father, I pray that you would open their hearts, that your Holy Spirit would move in this room, that you would convict us, Father, and that you would open our eyes to see Jesus so that this day we might walk out of here completely different. We might have walked in with all sorts of failures in the morning, arguments with family members, arguments with friends and things like that, all the things we brought in, but we might walk out of here with our heads held high, saying, oh, how great you are. Father, that's all we ever want, is to make you famous. And so we thank you that even our imperfections can be used in that regard. Thank you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thank you.